Hey Rebels, welcome to Blasphemous Nutrition. Consider this podcast your pantry full of clarity, perspective, and the nuance needed to counter the superficial health advice so freely given on the internet. I'm Amy, the unapologetically candid host of Blasphemous Nutrition and a double-degreed nutritionist with 20 years experience. I'm here to share a more nuanced take on living and eating well to sustain and recover your health. If you found most health advice to be so generic as to be meaningless or so extreme that it's unrealistic and you don't mind the occasional F-bomb, you've come to the right place. From dissecting the latest nutrition trends to breaking down published research and sharing my own clinical experiences, I'm on a mission to foster clarity amidst all the confusion and empower you to have the health you need to live a life you love. Now let's get started. Welcome back to Blasphemous Nutrition. My name is Amy, and I chronically lust after fashionable footwear. Today I want to talk about the most important things to ask yourself before considering what we're now calling lifestyle medications. I am going to specifically tailor this episode to weight loss medications because they are hot right now. And uh, weight loss meds are often prescribed without really much forethought or consideration. And honestly, I guess that actually could be said also for cholesterol-lowering medication and blood pressure medication. So while the questions that I am um, posing today are specifically to weight loss, I think they are valuable to ask in the case of other chronic long-term health conditions, such as heart disease and elevated blood sugars, right? Because when at advanced stages, you absolutely need to be on medication and stay on medication uh, due just to the chronic degradation of the body. At an initial diagnosis, when they're first being recommended, you're really in a place to have an opportunity to utilize the power of lifestyle and nutrition to delay or prevent being on those medications for a long period of time. But again, these conversations don't typically happen in a doctor's office because you can't cover that. (laughs) You just can't cover that in a 10 or 15 minute visit. And these days you're lucky if you get 10 or 15 minutes with your primary care provider. However, today I'm just going to be asking these questions in light of weight loss medications because I have had people asking me about them. So while weight loss meds are often prescribed without much forethought or consideration, and they may work for a time, the results thus far have been largely dependent upon staying on the prescription. And this can come with some rather unpleasant side effects. I'm not going to go into the side effects today. But I do want to pose these very important questions that you must ask yourself if your prescribing provider is not asking them of you. Firstly, have you addressed your diet quality or are you committed to doing so? If what you eat is of poor quality, eating less of it but still maintaining that poor quality is not going to improve your health much in the long run. Addressing sufficient vitamin and mineral intake and especially addressing protein if weight loss is your goal is absolutely essential to maintaining health and preventing metabolic slowdown from loss of muscle mass, as well as unpleasant things like sagging skin and hair loss and mood swings that come from malnourishment on a chronically low-calorie diet. Weight loss plans that neglect the food quality and just strictly focus on calories 
and especially neglect to ensure that adequate protein is taken in may be implicated in some long-term metabolic adaptations that actually make it harder to lose weight and keep weight off. Now, oftentimes the people who are inquiring about these weight loss medications are those people who are like, you know, every time I try and lose weight, it's harder and harder. I have a slow metabolism now. My metabolism is damaged. Can this medication allow me to lose weight? And maybe, yes, but it will be doing it through the same mechanism that fucked up your metabolism in the first place. If you're unable to digest your food because the medication has slowed down your digestive system and you're always full and you're never hungry, then you're having this external force upon your appetite that will cause you to eat less food that will slow down your metabolism even more and you'll get further stuck in the ditch that has been created through poor dietary practices, right? Through these like quick weight loss programs that, you know, maybe you tried when you were younger that really jacked things up from that calories in, calories out idea that has been really pervasive in the weight loss industry for a long period of time. The situation that is at hand for those individuals isn't doing more of the thing that fucked you up. It's learning how to nourish your body so that your metabolism can recover to some degree and you can then begin to lose weight. So in this situation, if you started a weight loss medication, you might actually lose some weight, but it's because you're stimulating and pushing the issue that caused the problem in the first place. And likely what ends up happening in these individuals is there's only so low you can go. You can't subsist on nothing. And the fewer calories you're able to take in, the more at risk you are for health problems exacerbated by nutrient deficiencies down the road. And you may reach a plateau early if you start taking something like one of the GLP-1 receptor agonists and you're eating so little, but you have 40 or 50 pounds to lose and your metabolism is self-diagnosed or were determined by someone to be sluggish or or damaged, eating less will further exacerbate that metabolic adaptation that has been a problem. And then you're plateauing with maybe a 10-pound, 15-pound, 20-pound weight loss, and you still have more to go, but you're only eating five, 700 calories a day. You, you just, you can't go lower than that. Even at that level of caloric intake, you're losing muscle mass. You're certainly not getting enough nutrients, right? And so if we are going to have a healthy metabolism, we have to eat. If we are going to have weight loss that is sustained for decades, if not one's entire life, you absolutely have to address what you are putting into your body and not rely exclusively upon a medication to get there for you. The other thing to take into consideration, this is question number two, are you an emotional eater? Obviously, that does have relevance in terms of learning how to utilize food appropriately for weight and health and minimize one's reliance on it as a means to 
soothe stress or challenging emotions because, I mean, at least for those who tend to binge eat or overeat, you know, that's a pretty simple excess intake of calories is causing weight gain situation, right? But even beyond that, if you do not have an eating disorder, right, you don't have binge eating disorder or something more on the extreme end, but you stressy, you nibble after work or have glasses of wine to calm down after a horrible day at work or issues with your teenager. I mean, this is pretty common to self-medicate in this way. So the degree to which you are an emotional eater or which you utilize food or alcohol to mitigate some of the challenges in life will absolutely have an impact on your ability to get the results that you want from this medication. So for those who are emotional eaters or gray area drinkers, I will say like in all honesty in clinical practice, I have seen these medications completely kill off the desire to emotionally eat. And this is a freaking miracle for patients because they feel like they have this space between the trigger that sets them off to grab a snack or to, you know, hit the drive through on the way home from work and the response to make a different choice. It isn't that, you know, they have a hard day at work and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, crap, I did it again, you know, because there's that empty wrapper or whatever in the car seat next to you. But there's this moment where they recognize the trigger and they have the distance from it to choose a different choice. And in some cases, they just simply no longer have the desire to eat when stressed. It's just gone. And, and you know, I've had, I've had people say it's the first time in my life that I don't feel like doing this when I'm stressed out. However, when you go off that medication, that root cause is still there. And for my patients who didn't address their stressors or take the opportunity to consciously recreate a new response to those strong emotions that are an inevitable part of life, right, they would end up reverting back to binges and stress eating when they were transitioning off the medications or particularly in the case of these new super sexy GLP-1 receptor agonists when medication supplies are difficult to come by or their insurance is no longer covering it. And then it's it's just absolutely heart-wrenching to watch them feel like they're horrifically out of control and have very quick rebound weight gain because they hadn't learned how to do things differently, right? Because in this like glorious phase where they were no longer having the drive to emotional eat, they took it as like a rest, as a reprieve, rather than utilizing it as an opportunity to do the hard work that needed to be done to heal trauma or to learn better coping strategies to deal with the stressors of life. And sometimes that experience is what drove them to hire me in the first place to help them implement better strategies. And sometimes this would happen while we were working together and we had to circle back around and address these foundational challenges that had not been uncovered until the medication became unavailable. So facing one's unresolved trauma, regrets, and just these bad habits that we pick up, it's hard, grueling work. That said, the results of overcoming your triggers to eat and regulate your emotions in different ways is really powerful beyond weight loss. It gives you a whole new lease on life 
that is something that you earned and like you did the freaking hard work and learned how to do it differently. And that stays with you no matter what, right? That is not something that is dependent upon a pharmaceutical company or prescription access or the whims of your insurance company to decide whether or not you should be allowed to have that. It's internally sourced and no one can take it away from you. And that gives you improved self-confidence irrespective of any changes on the scale. It allows you to have greater intimacy and connectedness with those you love and care about because you've really unearthed a new way to be present with hard stuff rather than push it away or delay it or not deal with it. And I know that sounds a, that sounds a little harsh coming out of my mouth, and I don't mean for it to be that way, but when we're choosing to eat or to drink instead of sitting in the hard shit and experiencing both the good and the bad of life, it is in effect kind of trying to take a step right from those emotions. But then we never fully learn how to integrate and heal and recover and adapt in a positive way. And when you have that shift within you, when you learn those skills and those tools, it changes your perspective of everything. Those who are the most successful with weaning off of appetite-suppressing medications are those who have used this break from food cravings to really dial in and test out a sustainable, successful, nutrient-dense eating plan while addressing any trauma or root causes to stress eating through therapy or coaching or other emotional support systems. And that brings me to my next question. Are you prepared to be on this for life? Outside of the side effects, the most common criticism from all classes of weight loss drugs are that they only work as long as you stay on them. And, you know, that's not really terribly surprising, right? But most conversations that are had, which lead to a prescription, do not really highlight this, nor emphasize the need to lay a very strong foundation to have the most success if you choose not to stay on them for life. The best use for these medications, and really, honestly, for most lifestyle medications, are to use it as a stopgap or a support tool while the root causes are addressed. If your nutrition habits remain unchanged, and the emotions and stressors that lead to making poor food choices or even sometimes just like the scheduling challenges, right? Because it's it's not really that easy, particularly in the United States, to get quality food on the table. It takes some effort. And if we're not paying attention to that, the default is continued metabolic disease. The default is continued weight gain because our food culture in the United States and our food quality leads to that outcome. That's just it, right? That's just it. Over half of America's population would not be pre-diabetic, this is the adult population, would not be pre-diabetic if that were not the case. So any prescription that you go on that's intended to be something for the rest of your life assumes that you are not going to take the opportunity to change your habits and to change the situations and patterns that brought you there in the first place. If your diet is unchanged, 
and those emotions and stressors remain unresolved, rebound weight gain is, is going to happen once you go off the meds. So if you're not prepared to be on this medication for life, it really needs to be a serious consideration. And while medications like fentermine have been in the public space for over 20 years, the ones that are getting all the attention these days have not. GLP-1 receptor agonists are the hot shit right now, right? Everybody's heard about Ozempic. These medications are taking up a lot of airspace and screen space and TikTok space, so much so, so that medication shortages are commonplace. If you're unfamiliar with Ozempic, Wagovi, Trulicity, Manjaro, Zepbound, like these are some of the brand names for these new classes of medications that are being used for weight loss. Ozempic has been approved for diabetes since I think 2017, but as it has had time on the street, the notable side effect of weight loss that came with it made it this new darling of weight loss medications. And this family of GLP-1 receptor agonists prompted a massive rush to market for other medications in this class. About a year ago, Canada even announced that it was not going to allow prescriptions from the United States to be filled for Ozempic because they were losing too much of the Canadian supply that was needed for Canadian diabetics. The U.S. market at that time had been totally tapped out, and patients were told the only reliable way to get their prescription filled was going to be through Canadian pharmacies that were willing to ship across the border. But our thirst for appetite suppressants are so high that it put the Canadian diabetic population at risk of losing their medication. Okay. It's worth noting that long-term data on the implications of multi-decade use of this class of medications are completely absent because they haven't been out that long. And, you know, this new class is called a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So the hormone GLP-1 has an impact on appetite and the receptor is the, uh, the door, if you will, that that hormone attaches to in order to elicit a response in the body. So these receptors exist in the GI tract and the pancreas, and that's where most of our understanding of them lie. And that is how researchers were able to create this medication in order to reduce blood sugar was through the understanding of GLP-1 in the pancreas. However, these receptors also exist in the brain, the kidney, the liver, the heart, the lungs, and even adipose tissue, or what we call body fat out in the real world. And this suggests that this hormone has a role to play in multiple systems of the body, not just in appetite regulation, not just in glucose regulation. So a medication, which is a GLP-1 receptor agonist, meaning it activates this receptor, may have long-term impacts affecting numerous systems of the body. We honestly just don't know. The hormone GLP-1 itself was only discovered in 1979, and our knowledge of it is nearly exclusively tied to its impact on glucose regulation. There's a whole fuck ton of information we still have to learn about the GLP hormones and what it does in our body and how medication can impact the entire system beyond just the GI tract and the pancreas. So to summarize, 
the three questions that you want to ask yourself before beginning a weight loss medication, or really any medication that is intended to treat a chronic disease caused by lifestyle, these so-called lifestyle meds, you want to ask yourself these three questions. One, have I addressed my food quality and am I eating as well as I know I need to be? Or am I going to be devoting time, energy, and resources to seriously address this as part of my treatment plan? Two, am I an emotional eater? Am I prepared to address this aspect of coping skills as part of creating a healthy weight and a healthy future for myself? And three, am I prepared and willing to stay on this medication for life? Already, folks, I'm keeping it short and salty this week. And If you've been considering medication for weight loss, I do hope that these questions help you to come to decide what is going to be the next best course of action for you. If you're not yet following Blasphemous Nutrition, be sure to hit that button so you get a salty stew of nuance delivered into your feed each and every week. And if this episode reminded you of someone, be sure to share it with them. They'll love to know that you thought of them and may find the information quite helpful. Until next time, my friends, keep that critical thinking cap nice and tight on your head and stay salty. Any and all information shared here is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be misconstrued as offering medical advice. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a provider-client relationship. Note, I'm not a doctor nor a nurse, and it is imperative that you utilize your brain and your medical team to make the best decisions for your own health. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked to this podcast are at the user's own risk. No information nor resources provided are intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Be a smart human and do not disregard or postpone obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you may have. Seek the assistance of your healthcare team for any such conditions and always do so before making any changes to your medical, nutrition, or health plan. If you have found some nuggets of wisdom, make sure to subscribe, rate, and share blasphemous nutrition with those you care about. As you navigate the labyrinth of health advice out there, remember, health is a journey, not a dietary dictatorship. Stay skeptical, stay daring, and challenge the norms that no longer serve you. If you've got burning questions or want to share your own flavor of rebellion, slide into my DMs. Your stories fuel me, and I love hearing them. Thanks again for tuning in to Blasphemous Nutrition. Until next time, this is Amy signing off, reminding you that truth is nuanced, and any dish can be made better with a little bit of sass.